Hello, and welcome to Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm Managing Editor Elizabeth Orr. The annual MedCon Medical Device Conference recently wrapped up, and plenty of industry news was made there. Here to talk about that is MedTech Insight Executive Editor, Sean Schmidt. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yes, lots of news out of MedCon this year, spread over the course of two weeks. And it's important to note here that MedCon was hosted by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and Cincinnati's Xavier University. So let's dig in and start with a keynote talk given by Jeff Shuren, who's director of the FDA's Center for Devices and Radiological Health. There were two nuggets of news that came out of his talk, the first being that He wants industry to know that the agency's efforts around harmonizing its quality system regulation, or QSR, with international quality system standard ISO 13485 is, quote, back on track. Shuren acknowledged that tackling the pandemic meant FDA had to put certain tasks on the back burner. The QSR harmonization was one of them. The agency has been retooling the QSR for a few years now, right? Yeah, uh, harmonization efforts have been ongoing since 2018. The FDA has set five internal deadlines since 2019 for releasing a draft of the proposed rule, but it's missed all of them. But at MedCon, Shuren defended the amount of time the agency has taken to craft the draft rule. Uh, Beyond the time-sucking demands of the pandemic, he said it was also important that the agency takes its time to get the job done right. And that means making sure the crosswalk between the new QSR and ISO 13485 is solid before releasing a draft rule. I know you said the FDA has missed five of its internal deadlines so far, but is there any rough estimate on when the draft rule might come? All that Shuren would say is that the draft would come sometime this year, so your guess is as good as mine. I guess that's fair enough. Uh, What else did Shuren have to say? Well, the other interesting piece of news concerns a new agency-wide Inspectional Affairs Council that was announced in passing by FDA earlier this month. The FDA says this new council will, quote, plan and coordinate inspectional activities, but the agency has given no specifics. But at MedCon, Jeff Sheeran shed a bit more light on the situation, noting that, quote, senior-level folks would be tapped to participate in the council. It's interesting that you say this new Inspectional Affairs Council will plan and coordinate inspections because that's already the function of the FDA's Office of Regulatory Affairs, right? That's right. Uh, the Office of Regulatory Affairs, or ORA, conducts all of the agency's field activities, so it's unclear right now how the new council would complement what the ORA already does. I think at this point, the council is just a concept, and not much thought has really been put into how it'll be structured or what it'll ultimately do. Someone at the agency probably thought an Inspectional Affairs Council sounded like a cool thing to have, but really didn't think it through yet. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some other MedCon news. I saw that you posted a story yesterday at MedTechInsight.com that was focused on recalls. Let's talk about that. Sure. At a MedCon session, Meredith Andrus, she's a recall coordinator in the FDA's Office of Medical Device and Radiological Health Operations. She said that the agency is keeping a sharp eye on firms that initiate moderate risk class two recalls, especially those that trigger multiple class twos in a given year. 
Andrus shared results of an FDA analysis of 437 Class II recalls that were initiated in fiscal year 2020, which ran from October 2019 to September 2020. One of the things they found was that more than 30 device makers had at least three Class II recalls during that time frame. She said that when the FDA sees multiple recalls happen for one firm, it signals concerns for the agency. And during her talk, Andrus pointed out that the FDA is, quote, really starting to look closely and more in-depth at Class II recalls. So moving forward, this should be something that's on the radar of all manufacturers. Did she say anything else about that Class II analysis? Uh, she did. The FDA's analysis did reveal that Troubles with production and process controls, which is found under Quality System Regulations Section 820.70, that was at the heart of most fiscal 2020 Class II recalls. Andrus did go into more detail about that issue, and if listeners are interested, they can go to medtechinsight.com and read all about that. Oh, and this is a good time to also mention that this week we posted first quarter 2021 data for medical device recalls. Listeners can check out our infographic on that, also at medtechinsight.com. Yeah, there's some interesting information in that Q1 2021 data that industry should be aware of. But okay, so moving on from that shameless plug and getting back to talking about MedCon, what else stood out for you? Sure. Another item of note is that FDA speakers at the conference said the success of the Case for Quality Voluntary Improvement Program, or CFQVIP, has been so successful that it's triggered a broader culture shift within the agency's device center, CDRH. CFQ VIP is run jointly by the FDA and the Medical Device Innovation Consortium, or MDIC. The goal of the program is to elevate product, manufacturing, and process quality at device firms by appraising the companies against an industry-modified version of the Capability Maturity Model Integration, or CMMI, framework. I've written extensively about CFQ VIP for MedTech Insight, so if listeners want to know the specifics of the program, they can find that on our website. So manufacturers enrolled in CFQ VIP, they receive an array of benefits from the FDA, including streamlined and accelerated options for 30-day notices, site transfer changes, and pre-market submissions. The agency offers those incentives because successful participation in the program can give FDA product reviewers a level of quality assurance. At MedCon, Cisco Vicente, he's the FDA's Case for Quality Collaborative Community Program Manager. He said CDRH has seen shifts in the way its review teams and review divisions interact with device makers. That interaction between regulator and regulatee has led to what he called a broader culture shift at FDA. Vicente said that shift is beginning to percolate into other areas and activities that the device center has been engaged in, including initiatives to build out supplier resilience and managing product shortages more quickly. He even said that the CFQ VIP program could, quote, become something that drives a lot of our new strategic initiatives and strategic priorities moving forward. So this is something to keep an eye on if you're interested in the inner workings of the FDA and more specifically the Center for Devices. 
Interesting to know that the case for quality is bearing fruit for the agency in ways it hadn't expected. So thanks for that. What else do you have for us? Well, uh, quality and regulatory officials from Boston Scientific, Becton Dickinson, and Steris explained at MedCon how their companies are supporting their employees during the pandemic. And they offered tips on supporting the mental health of workers, as well as virtually onboarding new hires and more. But I'll let listeners head to medtechinsight.com if they want to know more about what those firms are up to. But before we end our podcast, Elizabeth, I know that you also attended a few sessions at MedCon on the FDA's Breakthrough Devices Program and its eStar pilot to streamline 510K submissions. Talk about that a bit. With pleasure. So eStar, which is short for Electronic Submission Templating Resource, is a program that encourages sponsors to submit 510K applications completed using a dynamic PDF template that asks for the same information that FDA reviewers are trained to look for in reviewing submissions. The idea is to make the 510K process smoother and more predictable by getting sponsors to answer the same questions and use the same logic that are laid out in the agency's internal review documents. The idea is to make the 510K process smoother and more predictable by getting sponsors to answer the same questions and use the same logic that are laid out in the agency's internal review documents while they're completing the application. And there are benefits beyond the consistency, FDA biomedical engineer Patrick Axtell said at MedCon. First, sponsors using eStar can sidestep several previous requirements, like e-copy format validation and refuse to accept, or RTA, review. The form also incorporates requirements laid out in some FDA guidance documents, like those on device for processing and sterility. The idea is to save sponsors the time and stress of cross-referencing multiple documents and templates. The whole program launches a pilot in February 2020, but it's now open to all developers submitting 510Ks. At MedCon, Axtell said the agency has received 51 eStar 510Ks since the template became available. Of those, 19 were cleared, one was not cleared, and two were withdrawn by the sponsor. The remaining 29 are in review. Interesting. And what kind of feedback is the FDA seeing so far? Mostly positive comments from sponsors, according to Axtell. But while reviewers generally like the program, there's a little more hesitation on the FDA side because the template doesn't let them use the standard refuse-to-accept process. The hope is that as reviewers use eStar more and see that the RTA issues are addressed within the document, they'll understand why that choice was made. And you also went to the session on the Breakthrough Devices program. What was the news there? The program is pretty well established at this point. So the key message, Owen Ferris, who's the principal deputy director in the FDA Device Center's Office of Product Evaluation Quality, was trying to get across is that companies that want a breakthrough designation need to be ready to work closely with the FDA during a 60-day review sprint. I'm sorry, a sprint? The FDA doesn't do anything that fast. Normally, that's true, but the breakthrough timeline as laid out in statute and followed by agency review teams is tight. Ferris explained that the agency gets the breakthrough designation request on day zero, then spends 30 days conducting substantive review. At the end of that 30 days, they're deciding whether to grant or deny the clearance or request additional information and pause the review. What that means is that the FDA team expects sponsors to answer questions quickly so they can stay within the 60 days. Additionally, regulators and staff should expect to have regular meetings during the breakthrough process as a way to reach agreement on any specific thorny points. Right. The FDA has been stressing the importance of communication lately. But like you said, breakthrough has been around for a while. So did you get any numbers on it? 
I did. Ferris presented charts that showed the exponential growth of the EAP and breakthrough programs, which went from 22 applications in 2015 to 387 applications in 2020. This year, the FDA had received 121 breakthrough applications as of March 31st. But applications to the program don't ensure acceptance, the data showed. Of the 904 potential breakthrough devices that applied to the program since 2015, only 464 were accepted, about 51%. Ferris said a common reason for a no is that there isn't enough evidence yet to show the device improves on the standard of care, which means the FDA may change its mind if more research is made available. Of devices accepted into the pathway, the FDA had authorized 26 for marketing before March 31st. These included 12 PMAs, 70 Novos, and 7 510Ks. The most common medical arenas for the approved devices were cardiovascular at five devices and neurology at four devices, and there were two devices each in the fields of pathology, microbiology, gastroenterology, urology, and ophthalmic. Interesting stuff, and that's definitely information that industry needs to keep an eye on. That's right. Thanks, Sean. Listeners, you can check out all of our MedCon coverage at MedTechInsight.com. And for all the latest MedTech policy and regulation news and analysis, you can follow us on Twitter at MedTech underscore Insight. For now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.